Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to see you. Great to worship with you today. Uh, welcome to South Shore Baptist Church. If we haven't met yet, my name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor. And I'm excited to dive into Matthew chapter 5 with you this morning. And so if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 5? If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, and maybe you're new to the Bible, new to the church, let me encourage you to open up that black pew Bible in front of you. And I'll give you a shortcut to find the passage we're going to study today in that pew Bible. It's on page 858, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, real quick housekeeping item while you're turning there. Uh, we've got another car situation. So if you drive a two-door Volkswagen, cute little silver car, an EOS, uh, it is currently running and unoccupied. So uh, we'll see you back here in just a little bit. All right. You ever look at the world and think, what is wrong with this place? Maybe just your little world. You look at the world you live in and you think, man, this is so messed up. And having said that, have you ever turned your eyes to heaven and asked, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? I think it's a Christian that a question that, that so many Christians wrestle with, the question of, how are we to relate to a world that is terrifying, that is intense, that is under the decay of sin and rot? What will your posture be to that world? Will you fight it? Will you embrace it? Will you hide from it? Maybe you'll just separate and live alongside it. But that same kind of question hung over the heads of the people gathered around Jesus on this hillside in Galilee in Matthew chapter 5. The people with Jesus on this day were living in a world just as intense, just as terrifying as the world we live in today. Their world was under Roman occupation. Now, when you studied this in history, that period of time is called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But make no mistake, it was peace at the edge of a sword. The religious world held very little relief as well for the people around Jesus on this day. Divisions ran deep between all the various religious points of view. And even among Jesus' own disciples, there were varying opinions of how they should relate to the world. Simon the Zealot was a fighter. Matthew the tax collector had wallowed in the world's filth. James and John wanted to rule over the world. So Jesus, what are you going to do about this mess? Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And although you probably already know how he's going to answer, you should still be surprised that Jesus told his followers that through him, they are world changers. Those who follow Jesus are saved by him, equipped by him, sent by him to transform the world they live in. 
not to take up arms against it, not to wrap their arms around it, not to use their arms to push it away, but to transform it in the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus' followers that he spoke to on this day, they had no army, no political power, no wealth, no prestige of any kind, but Jesus said they are world changers. And that should, change, that should uh, surprise us. That Jesus would say that about this group in Matthew 5 and about this group here this morning. That he would look at this little flock in the face of every hardship of this world and say, you're the ones that are going to change it. And it should also surprise us that Jesus would look at the world and he would say, I'm going to save it. In all of its decay and depravity, Christ loves the world. So we're going to read very familiar words this morning, but I need you to listen with new ears to this passage. Because my goal today is to get you to believe what Jesus says about you. If you've got a problem with the passage today, you've got a problem with what Jesus says about you. He expects you to be a world changer. And, and I don't mean that you're responsible for the entire globe. I mean the little piece of earth that you occupy, the lives you interact with. Jesus has saved you to be a world changer there. And how is it that Christians change the world? Well, in the passage we're studying this morning, I want to show you three actions by which followers of Jesus change the world. Three essential actions that change the world we live in. So here we are in Matthew chapter 5. This is the front end of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are all one singular teaching unit from Jesus. We call it the Sermon on the Mount uh, because he's on this hillside Uh, the side of a steep hill, a mountain by some estimations. And uh, he delivers this long, beautiful description of what life in his kingdom is like. And so listen to what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's such a startling paragraph from Jesus, especially on the heels of what he just finished saying. Remember what Jesus said in the passage we studied last week, the beginning of chapter 5. These are the Beatitudes, these eight statements of blessing. The first four he said, uh, you're blessed when you recognize your sin and come humbly to God and thirst and hunger for righteousness. And you're blessed when you're merciful and a peacemaker and you're pure in heart. And then remember the last blessing You're blessed when they persecute you. When they persecute you for righteousness, for my name's sake, every vile thing said against you. You are blessed when the world 
persecute you. And then he pivots right around and says, in this world that wants to crush you, that will revile you, that will hate you because of me, you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're a world changer. And our passage gives us three essential actions by which followers of Jesus change the world. The first one is this. It is confrontation. There is a confrontation that changes the world we live in. So Jesus begins with his first metaphor. He says, you are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's tough to say. You would think that it would be connected to some specific purpose. Like salt does a thing and therefore Christians similarly do that thing. But what's the thing? Uh, here's the challenge. Salt does a lot of things. Just think about our contemporary world. It flavors your food. It, it uh, goes on roads when it's icy or the sidewalk when the weather's bad. Uh, maybe it's a beauty treatment, a nice little salt scrub. That's how I keep my complexion so clear and my pores are wide open and beautiful. There's any number of ways that we use salt. The same was true in uh, biblical times as well. Here's just a few ways salt is used in the Bible. It's used for purification purposes. It's used in sacrifices, in worship. It's also used in the destruction of land. Uh, As a sign of judgment, uh, salt would be poured over um, fields and it would ruin the soil for some time. Uh, It was used as currency. It was also, of course, used as flavoring. Historians have said they've identified as many as 11 different purposes of salt. And so here's the question. Which purpose is Jesus referring to? What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Which is the correct one? And I wonder if maybe they aren't all correct. Maybe that's part of the genius of Jesus is that he didn't name a specific purpose because they they all apply in some way. But think about this. What if it isn't a specific purpose of salt that Jesus had in mind, but rather an essential quality? And that essential quality is bite. Salt has a bite to it. Its presence is is known. Salt is a, it's a confrontation that changes things. And how is this true of Christian people? Well, our message to the world of the judgment of sin and salvation through a gracious Savior is a confrontational thing. It's a message with bite. This, the simple statement that Jesus said in the passage before this, uh, that you should be poor in spirit, that you should recognize your spiritual failure before God, that you should mourn your sin, that you should come humbly to God and long for righteousness, well, that is a message that confronts the goals and comforts and sinful wants of this world. That message confronts us in our sin and says, something's wrong here And there is a correction to this. There's a rescue from the decay and the brokenness of our sin. But the world doesn't want a God to submit to, a cross to carry, or a call to self-sacrifice. All of us in our sin, we want ease and abundance and a God who does our bidding. 
This is a confrontation with the world. And not many Christians are comfortable with this sort of language. They don't want a confrontation. They don't want to be the salt of the earth. They would rather be the honey of the earth. They want to sweeten, fatten, comfort the world and put it at ease. So they've softened hell into non-existence. They rush into a broken world of broken people and spew the blasphemous lie, you're okay just as you are. They're like a doctor who refuses to give an accurate diagnosis to a desperately ill patient because the doctor loves the patient too much. So they point to the hellish lives that people are living and they say, no, this this is exactly what God wants for you. But you're not the honey of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Now, there are some Christians who see the word confrontation, and, man, they get pumped up. They they are ready for a fight. They're mad at the world, and they'll tell anyone who will stand still long enough to listen to their dribble. But Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, not the castor oil of the earth. These people delight for the world to be repulsed by them. Wear it as a badge of honor. They detest their ideological opponents, their political opponents, even other faithful Christians with whom they have minor disagreements. They're like a doctor who won't let sick people into the clinic because they're sick. But you're not the castor oil of the earth, and you're not the honey of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And like salt, you have a preserving power, the power to stop decay. The decay of sin is stopped when we bring people to Jesus. That's the confrontation that saves. That's the confrontation of compassion To say, I see you in your brokenness. I see you in the hurt of this world. I'm going to bring you to rescue. I want to put hope in front of you. That's what it is to be the salt of the earth. You are confronting the world with the good news of Christ's salvation, of sinful people who come to him in faith. That's the confrontation this world requires. You have to put Christ in front of them because you, you are the salt of the earth. Our first key action is a confrontation. Uh, We have another one beyond that. Our second key word is illumination. This is the second action by which we change the world. And this, of course, aligns with Jesus' second metaphor. You're the salt of the earth. You are, verse 14, the light of the world. And again, we have to ask An explanation question here. What does Jesus mean by this metaphor of light? And I think we have a clue right here in our passage where Jesus defines this for us. In verse 16, look at what Jesus said there. He said, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works. And so right here in our passage, Jesus equates the Christian's good works with the light that shines in the darkness. So what does it mean to be the light of the world? It means doing good works that shine in the darkness. All right, next question. What good works? 
What is it that constitutes these good works? And again, Jesus answers for us, but he answers from elsewhere in his ministry. And in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus said this. He said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. So who's the light? Is it us or is it Jesus? Well, it's Jesus. We are satellites of his great and primary light. He's the mega light. We are little LEDs, so to speak. But he's the light. And what is the purpose of his light? It is that people would believe in him. By believing, they come out of the darkness. So here's what it means to do good works that shine our lights before men. It means putting the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of people. The purpose of Jesus' light is that people would believe. So then our good works are gospel works in word and in deed. The gospel lived through our actions and spoken in our conversations. So you are the light of the world bringing gospel light to people living in darkness. That's you. He has saved you so that you would bring people to him through the good news of his gospel. Here's some things you need to know about your gospel light, this light that you carry. You need to know that it's powerful. Your gospel light is powerful beyond belief. And you might say, well, I'm not powerful, I'm not mighty, I'm not brave. Exactly. Because the power is not in you, the power is in the gospel itself. Now, I don't know how lighthouses work. I just imagine, like, there's a switch on the wall that you flip just like in your house, and boom, the whole harbor is lit up. And the power of that light is not in the one flipping the switch, it's in the light itself. So whether you are strong by some measure or weak by some measure, it doesn't matter. The power is in the light itself, and so it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your gospel light is powerful beyond belief, powerful to reach people in the darkest hell, to bring them to new life, to bring them alive again in Jesus Christ. The grossest sinner, the person farthest from the kingdom of God, even you yourself, this gospel light is more powerful than you can imagine. And you need to know that your gospel light is not just powerful in and of itself, but our gospel lights are powerful together. Jesus said, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Cities are made up of many lights, not just one single light. And so our gospel lights operate at peak efficiency when they are joined together in the gathered worship of the church and the gathered mission of the church. We, we want to shine our lights on all these wants and preferences of our own and yet God has made clear the reason we're here as an outpost of heaven, South Shore Baptist Church, is so that we together would bring people into the light and out of the darkness. You also need to know that your gospel light is resilient. It is not easily snuffed out. In fact, your gospel light is made for storms, for trials, for the darkest dark. These gospel lights of ours, they are not to be used on vanities 
in which we admire our own reflection. They are intended for rescue missions at the very gates of hell. Our gospel lights have greater resiliency, greater endurance, greater perseverance when they are joined together with our church. Look, you cannot hold allegiance to Jesus and then just disappear into the world. It's impossible to be an invisible Christian. A theologian named G.K. Bill said this, Light and darkness cannot dwell together in peaceful coexistence. Therefore, a witnessing church will be a persecuted church. Just buckle up, South Shore. So when the world roars against you, your brothers and sisters keep your light lit by their own gospel lights. You are the light of the world, making the gospel known in the world you occupy. How do followers of Jesus change the world? We change it through confrontation, through illumination, and then finally through dedication. Was that the word you were guessing? You saw the pattern. You're like, okay, what's word number three going to be? Some sort of Asian word. I really thought about just throwing you off and putting some random word in there, but we spent too much time talking about that already. Dedication is the word we're talking about. With both of these metaphors, salt and light, Jesus gave negative examples. So for salt, he said, if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything. And then for light... His negative example, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Now, we can understand that light example easily enough, right? Light, basket, yeah, we, we know what he's getting at there. But this salt one is tricky. Have you ever tasted salt that wasn't very salty? No, never. That's not how salt works. If you want your food to be saltier, you don't get saltier salt, you just get more salt, right? Salt is always at peak saltiness, never more, never less. It's just salt. That's just what it is. And so what does Jesus mean here when he says, if salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? Here's what I think he's saying. The only salt that isn't useful is the salt that isn't being used, When we refuse to use our lights by hiding them under a basket, or we refuse to use our salt by keeping it in a salt cellar, we are abandoning the mission of God and the people he loves. Salt and light are only useful when they are used. This language from Jesus is a call to action for all of us. Salt and light, the way they are used is they give of themselves. So light goes into the darkness and salt gets lost in the dough. Salt and light live by, uh, they, they work by sacrificing and giving of themselves, not by trying to preserve themselves. And this is in fact how Jesus has been salt and light to us. He didn't choose to just shine in the glory of heaven and to preserve and save himself from the comfort of his throne. No, he came as light into the darkness of this world, into the absolute sinful pit of humanity. 
And if any of us know salvation, if any of us have been forgiven, if any of us have been justified by God, it is because Jesus did not remain in the heavenly salt cellar, as it were, but he came down into our world and gave himself all the way from Bethlehem to Calvary. He gave himself for you, dedicated himself to you. And I wonder if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you knew that this is how salvation works. So many people have this idea that we have this merit-based relationship with God. I do good for him, however I determine it's good, and, and then he'll do good for me. But that's not what Jesus has taught us at all. Salvation works through the love of Jesus who, who was willing to lay aside his glory in order to die the death that you deserve for your sin against God. And Jesus, he, he is the big deal. He is fully God, fully human. He has to be fully human in order to really live and really die. He has to be fully God for his death to be effective in rescuing you from your sin and in order to conquer death itself. And so that's what he did at the cross. He died on the cross in our place for our sin against God. He himself totally sinless, totally innocent, holy, 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 completely righteous. But he died as if he were guilty of all of our sins against God. And when you come to him in faith, you turn your life to him, all of his life, all of his righteousness is credited to you and all your sin and punishment is taken at the cross because he loves you. He died three days later. He rose again. We know his promises are true, and he calls you today to come to him. This is the confrontation you have to hear this morning, that you're not okay in your sin and your brokenness. And here's what I've hoped to illuminate for you today is that Jesus is the rescue, the one and only rescue who loves you, and he's dedicated himself to you through his death on the cross. So will you dedicate yourself to him? I would love to have that conversation with you today or maybe in the week ahead. If you reach out to us, to, to me, or even on the connect card in that pew rack in front of you, there's a little box on there that says, I want to talk to a pastor. And if you'll check that box and drop that card in one of the black boxes out there, you'll be our top priority tomorrow morning, I promise. We want to have that conversation with you because you need to know the love of Jesus. And so Jesus has dedicated himself, gave of himself for our salvation. That's how salt and light work, by giving of themselves. That's something that salt and light have in common. They're dedicated to being used for the benefit of others, so they're the exact opposite of every kind of self-centered religiosity. But here's something that salt and light have in opposite. Salt works in secret. You can't see it operating, but you can't miss it. That's what the influence of a Christian life is like on their families, with our coworkers and our neighbors, with the kid at Dunks, with the people near us in the pews. This is exactly the kind of influence Peter was referencing in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. When he told Christian wives of non-Christian husbands, in the same way wives submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure 
reverent lives. Salt works in secret, imperceptible, but unmistakable in its potency. Light, on the other hand, works in public. Here we might think of the church's work of publicly sharing the gospel or publicly sending missionaries. We must be dedicated to a public sharing of Christ, whether it's through a single conversation or through a megaphone to the nations. You know, there's a way that our sanctuary can become a basket that we hide our lights under or a salt cellar where we store our salt in mass. But brothers and sisters, if we are to be salt and light in this world, we have to move from awe to action. Our church cannot be a museum to the past or a shrine to our traditions or a cruise ship where our personal preferences take top priority. We must be nothing less than a beacon of Christ to the south shore. We must be ever emptying the salt cellars of our lives so that every single grain accomplishes the will of God until the day we die. Those who are salt and light by the grace and calling of Christ must be dedicated to this work. How does Jesus intend to change the world? Jesus, look at this mess. What are you going to do about it? You. Through confrontation, illumination, and dedication, he has called you to change the world. There's a key word in this passage. I've said it a lot this morning. It's as subtle as a grain of salt, but once you see it, it is as blinding as the sun itself. And the key word in this passage is the first word of verse 13. It is the word you. Jesus, what are you doing about the world? You. That's what he's doing. Who's Jesus talking about? He's talking about you. This passage is for 100% of the people who read it. Jesus is talking about you. And that's where all God's people said, nope, not me. I'm not that guy. Why not? Let me hear the reasons Jesus isn't talking to you when he says you. How do you disqualify yourself? From the piercing gaze of Jesus. Let me hear the reasons it's not you. I'm too old. I'm too scared. I'm too introverted. I'm too unprepared. I'm too messed up. I'm too unreliable. I'm too weak. I'm too single. I'm too busy. I'm too sick. I'm too broken. Who were the people Jesus was speaking to on this day on this hillside? Who was his audience in Matthew chapter 5? They were old and young, male and female, single, married, widowed, sick, scared, messed up, unprepared, and weak, Every way you define weak. And Jesus spoke to all of them. What are you doing about the world? You. And Jesus speaks to us today 
about the state of our world, and he says, you, you are the salt and light of the earth. Church, you are God's plan A. There is no plan B. And the only way we lose in this endeavor is by going dormant like unused salt or unlit lamps. Do not let a terrifying world scare you into withdrawal. Believe what Jesus said in John 16, 33. You will have trouble in this world, but be courageous. I have overcome the world. And don't let your weaknesses be the reasons that you retreat. But believe what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, from Hull to Halifax and Quincy to Kingston, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you believe Jesus this morning, church, that you are the salt of the earth? You are the light of the world. He has not made a mistake by calling you into this glorious service. If in the week ahead the world is filled with more of the glory of God, it will be because you believe Jesus. So do you. And in this week, in the little world you occupy or the big world we're citizens of, will you fill your world with the glory of God? Will you shine your gospel light? Will you scatter your gospel salt in imperceptible and unmistakable ways? You are the one to change the world in the omnipotence of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the grace of Christ. Will you fill the earth with his glory? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let the south shore see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, send us. And you have. Jesus, help us with our unbelief. We are so easily persuaded by the darkness of this world. Easily uh, persuaded that things are unchangeable. But Lord, help us to believe what you've said. It's remarkable, Father, that you believe in us. Help us to believe your word so that we would be salt and light in the places you've sent us. This week, give us your courage. Give us your compassion. Help us as we step into this world. Give us the confidence of that eternal city, knowing where all this is headed. Lord, let us put the gospel to the test living and sharing it in intentional ways with the people around us. And in so doing, we know you're going to do amazing things that we'll see men and women and boys and girls come alive through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, move through us. Let us be discontent with complaining about the state of affairs. Let us not waver in fear, but Lord, let us move forward with our gospel lights. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.